Psalm 123. There was a policeman in a small town who noticed a young man driving very fast through his small town. And he stopped, he pulled him over and was going to yank him to jail for his uh, breaking of the law. The young man tried to protest, but the policeman cut him off short and just yanked him off to jail. Later in the day, the policeman uh, came to the man in jail and said, don't worry, it won't be too bad. The, the chief will be in a good mood. He's, he's out now, but when he comes back, he'll be in a good mood because he's been at his uh, daughter's uh, wedding. The young man said, don't count on it, I'm the groom. (laughs) Injustice. Teacher tried to get his uh, students, the, the, uh, the people in the class, the children in the class, to come up with a good example of injustice. One of the children raised uh, his hand, and so the teacher said, yes, let's hear it. What's your example of injustice? And the child said, well, here's my example. When my dad makes mistakes in the homework, the teacher blames me. <laughs> Psalm 123, an example of injustice. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has shown us uh, mercy, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. I will evermore be someone who is marked by one experience of injustice that I received. I did not grow up in the ghetto. And I've never experienced the cold horror of racism. Nor am I like the countless millions who struggle in slums, slick with human waste. I am a white Westerner with a privileged background and a privileged education. I did not have to fight my way up from the ground, earn my living sieving through garbage as some do, grateful for the job. I have not begged as a blinded untouchable for a living. I have rarely felt the systemic repression of structural evil that immunes us to the possibility that we might make a better life for ourselves and leaves the downtrodden with the hangdog look that feels that life can never be different. I have not been homeless on the streets for years, hunted for shelter under a bridge, hidden from the prying eyes around through the easy numbness of the bottle. I have known people who have been in these situations from time to time and have done my bit from time to time to alleviate what suffering I could. As such, I have felt myself to be a compassionate person, 
Not one likely to pass by on the other side, but to reach out a hand to those who have been the victim of scorn or contempt from those who are at ease. My brush with injustice was far more minor than what we read about and watch and what millions experience today. It is so minor that I dare not mention it in the same breath as the tortured or the repressed. When we look at Egypt or Tunisia or Libya today, we hear stories of people who have been the victim of injustices in ways which few of us in this room can imagine, and fewer still have even come close to suffering. Our petty injustices must not be put at the same level as someone who by virtue of their birth in a shanty town on the outskirts of some megapolis in the majority world has only the one chance in a million of getting out, the sort of fantasy escape routes that the movie Slumdog Millionaire fantasized. Now those stories are utterly worthless besides such stories, except for one thing. They allow us to extrapolate. They allow us the ability to gain a little empathy. They allow us the grace of understanding, and perhaps not simply sporadic compassion, but divine mercy. You see, it's one thing to look at a picture of a starving boy or meet a child whose parents have died of AIDS or to hear the story of someone who was tortured during the civil rights movement. It is another thing to believe that it could have been you. And to put yourself in that person's shoes and to realize that you and he are made of the same dust and by the same creator. See, that's what my one little brush with injustice has done for me. It has allowed me to feel the sheer anger of being wrongly accused, of being victimized, of having those who are at ease oppress and dominate, sometimes using moral words to encourage their own oppression. The uh, Yale professor of philosophy, Nicholas Waterstorff, in his book on justice, wrote about his observations regarding the rationale that was presented to keep on repressing people in the apartheid regime in South Africa at the time. He wrote, I saw as never before the good overwhelming the just and benevolence and the appeal to love being used as instruments of oppression. He carried on, Oppressors do all they can to cast the situation in terms of better and worse rather than justice and injustice, in terms of good behavior and bad behavior, in terms of benevolence. I certainly experienced that. And that was the point of the dagger. Not just the oppression, but that the oppression was good for you. Now this psalm does not deal with all the issues related to justice, and nor can we. Those issues are very great and intellectually complicated and practically strewn with pitfalls on that path to make sure that helping does not end up hurting. In the Western intellectual tradition from Plato in his Republic to Aristotle in his Ethics, 
to the work of Locke in the Enlightenment, to contemporary philosophers like Rawls and Amartya Sen, various important distinctions are often made. In some ways, the simplest definition of justice is the most ancient, given by the Roman Justinian's codification of Roman law that justice is a steady and enduring will to render to each their just deserts. There's a translation uh, mirror going on in Latin there. What is right? Of course, what that right is has been much debated. For Plato, it was the world of forms. That is, what is right is what is the right, capital R, the idea, we might say, of being right that is behind our apparent right. For Locke, in the Enlightenment tradition, there was a certain unalienable rights, as Thomas Jefferson put it, that was inherent to each individual human being. I'm touching on extremely complex issues, but there is nothing compared to the difficulty of making sure that whatever help that is given is not doing more damage than good. There is a difference between relief and development, and relief should not be given to those who need development, nor vice versa. This psalm does not do more than touch on that sort of discussion. Nor is it the fullest representative of the theme of justice in the Bible. We could go to the prophet Amos for that. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or to Isaiah's famous denouncement of Old Testament religion without practical care for the oppressed as something that God hates and is detestable to him, saying to them, the people instead, to seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. We can look at Jesus' pronouncement that he had come to preach good news to the poor, and listen to most scholars who say that rather than think that the poor there mean only the economic or only the spiritual poor, but instead to see the poor as a category of those who are on the outside of God's people to whom Jesus had come to appeal. Or his Matthew 25 declaration that whatever you have done to the least of these you have done for me, meaning those brothers and sisters of his in prison and suffering who are his, that is Christians, persecuted and victimized around the world and at home. We could trace the Bible's story through this theme, and if you want to do that, uh, you couldn't do better than read Craig Blomberg's Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Possessions, which is in College Church's library, or it will be if I have remembered to return it. (laughs) We could think of how the New Testament church enacts when it is described as having no poor among them. It's fulfilling the Old Testament call to have no poor in the land. So the New Testament church is a representative now of God's plan for community. We can think of how difficult this was for the church and how they set up various rules and procedures for caring for the poor widows. Paul advising Timothy that the widows on the list must meet certain qualifications such as godliness commitment to the church and others. 
We can think of how the Bible encourages the church to keep the main thing, the main thing, to center on the word and prayer without thereby denying the prophetic voice to injustices or prudent involvement in matters of witness to Christ through care and then discuss all the tricky decisions this might from time to time bring before the elders and pastors. But this psalm does something different. It is all rather more personal and frank and heartfelt than that. I want you to notice several things about it. First of all, I want you to notice that radical submission to God is not at the opposite end of the spectrum to a desire to be free from oppression. The psalmist is submitting to God like a servant. He is groveling, we might say. He is looking to the master. She is looking to her mistress like an ancient chattel looking to the hand, waiting for the merest gesture to obey immediately. See, our contemporary world tends to say, if you want to be free from repression, it starts with freeing yourself from submission to God. This psalm says the reverse. The only way to be free from repression is to have a higher set of values. Perhaps that is the difference between the revolution that ends with the butchery of the guillotine and one that leads to the beauty of the Constitution. I think of Martin Luther King's interview when he was being criticized for his opposition to the Vietnam War. He was asked on television whether he regretted that his stance may have alienated Johnson, the president at the time. His reply was that loyalty should not be associated always with agreement and that the principles of right and wrong in his own conscience were the values to which he must hold true. You see, unless we have a set of firm principles, we will not be able to stand up to naked power. And such principles are only secure when they are rooted in the person of God. You see, the psalmist is not saying that he's groveling before a hard task master. He's saying that because he is submitting to God in a radical way, he is able now to stick to his principles. Think of your situation at work. Here it is, there's a chance to make a fast buck or two. Will you cave in? If you have a radical submission to God and His Word, you will not. You have a higher loyalty that is firm and fixed. Second, I want you to notice that what the psalmist asks for is not justice but mercy. He certainly could have asked for justice. He has suffered contempt. He has had more than enough of scorn. And this scorn comes from those who, adding insult to injury, are at ease. That is, they have no idea of the situation which he has found himself in personally. And so like an able-bodied person scorning a disabled person. That is, they're doing something not just wrong, but grossly wrong. 
The contempt comes from those who are proud. They not only think too little of the psalmist, they think too much of themselves. They prune their feathers while they spit at him, he is saying. Oh yeah, he certainly has room for wanting some justice. And at a human level, before other humans, he would have room for justice, but not before God. No one in their right mind ever goes to God and says, give me justice before you. Of course, there is the cry that rightly goes up to God for justice in this world, and that God promises, Jesus promises, that his people will get in the end But before God, all of us ask for mercy if we are wise. For none of us is righteous, not even one. Before God, then, we are looking for mercy. That's what we need. Now, those seem to be the two principles that you find in this prayer. And together, it seems to me, they are quite revolutionary. You have a revolutionary submission. The context, you see, to this psalm is quite possibly that of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls after the return from exile. Whether this psalm was written then or written earlier and used then, it's quite possible, not certain, but possible, that this psalm was employed in the context of that ridicule that Nehemiah and the people received at their attempted rebuilding of the wall. Their enemies were saying that the wall was going to fall down. It was pathetic. It was terrible construction. They had no chance whatsoever. They were naive simpletons to think they could rebuild that wall. And they were treating them with contempt. And in such contexts, it would have been very easy for Nehemiah to lash back and attack, at least with words. Instead, he submits himself to God, we find in the story. God is in charge But this is not just the doctrine of God's sovereignty, for which we are, many of us, familiar. It is a personal decision to entrust the matter into the hands of the master, to look at his hand and let him be God in this situation. How much is that needed in so many situations when we feel repressed or wrongly treated. Uh, We tend to want to take the situation into our own hands and exact vengeance. We tend, you and I, to move purely at the human level and maybe begin even legal proceedings. We find it so hard to submit to the danger of letting God be God in this moment of trial and scorn. In Amartya Sen's technical work on justice, he begins with an illustration from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. He quotes uh, from Dickens like this. In the little world, the little world, in which children have their existence, there's nothing so finely perceived and finely felt as injustice. So true. And your issue of repression could go back many, many years to your own childhood, a slight from your parents, an overlook from what was rightly yours, a brother or sister who treated you badly. 
It could be more recent, an injustice you perceive in some personal relationship. Well, deal with it, the psalmist is modeling for us, by lifting your eyes to heaven, not by fixing your eye on the injustice at the human level. Practice a radical submission to God and His ways. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, we need not speak in prayer. A glance of the eye will do it all. And so in this looking up to God, we meet there not the eyes of another terrible dictator, but the God of justice and mercy, compassion and grace, who looks tenderly on His people. Perhaps there is some job that you feel should have been yours, some opportunity that you have been denied. Look to God about it. The commentator Cox calls this oculus sperans, the eye of hope. And when the eyes fasten upon God, then the words gush out in prayer, as they do in verses 3 and 4. And you see, if the context is Nehemiah and the oppression they were receiving, then they prayed and did not retaliate, And then having given the matter to God, they went on with their work of rebuilding the wall. Sometimes indeed, God's reply can be delayed. Martin Luther describes the right attitude to such delay of our cry for mercy like this. For in that he, that is God, defers his help. He does it not because he will not hear us, but to exercise and stir up our faith. And to teach us that the ways whereby he can and does deliver us are so manifold and miraculous that we are never able to conceive them. Therefore, let us think that the thing which we ask is not denied, but deferred, and assure ourselves that we are not neglected because of this delay. Well, perhaps all this seems rather small by comparison with the massive issues of justice, of contempt and scorn and repression in our world today of Libya and Egypt and Tunisia, of the millions starving. But no prayer is small because prayer is directed to the God of all. My personal relationship with Jesus at a time of repression is the opportunity then to be changed by him and so to become what Gandhi called the change that you wish to see in the world. I like the African proverb which says that if you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. (laughs) This is, if you like, a mosquito prayer. It's buzzing around the Psalms, making its way to God crying out over and over again, mercy, Lord. Would you have mercy, Lord? And in so doing, the psalmist, perhaps in that context of Nehemiah, is stopped from trying to take revenge and so appear petty and pathetic and exposed as far less powerful than his adversaries, but instead goes to God 
whose solution is far more powerful than any human pride. And so it is a prayer we can pray for ourselves in our own experiences of injustice. It's also a prayer we can pray for other people. For those who are suffering this kind of contempt, the hands of oppressors, that God would have mercy. You see, there, is a, there are many great temptations that come with being oppressed. We can make justice at a human level everything. We can take the gospel and turn it into a social action movement. We can, as T.S. Eliot said, end up doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, which he called the last and greatest temptation. And Martin Luther King termed the great heresy. In the end, speculations about justice and our attempts to achieve it are always fraught with difficulties, for we are bargaining between two sinners caught in a mesh of depravity, and what we need is justice on a God level and therefore mercy from the hands of the living Lord. It is no small thing that Christians learn to plead for mercy and practice it as well to embody the change they wish to see in the world. One young Jewish man 150 years ago grew up in Germany and the life of the family centered on the synagogue. The family moved to another part of Germany and one evening the father came home and announced that they were no longer attending the synagogue but would start going to the Lutheran church. The young man was startled and asked why and his father said it was for business contacts, more financially profitable to attend the Lutheran church. The young man became disillusioned and bitter. He later studied in London at the reading room of the British Museum and wrote that religion is the opiate of the people. Karl Marx was his name. One bit of cynicism and hypocrisy can make a world of difference. And one Christian on their knees before God with radical submission and a plea for mercy changed by that prayer, can change the world. Another man, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in a prison camp in Siberia, realized that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Perhaps you remember the revolution that was not in Tiananmen Square in China. If you do, I imagine the image that is burnt on your retina is that of one young man standing before a tank, shifting as it shifted, immovable in his resolution. The kind of courage that is required to proclaim the mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the solution to the problems of our world, without the naivety that ignores the repressive structural evils, nor the hypocrisy that pretends that Christianity must not be lived as well as taught. That we who plead for mercy must have mercy, we who have been forgiven must forgive That sort of thoroughbred gospel, undiluted, clear, but fruitful and brave. It's the result of the heartfelt prayer of one broken, pious Israelite on his knees before his master God asking for mercy. 
mercy for his captors, mercy for his oppressors, mercy for himself that he not give in to the sweet deceit of bitterness, mercy eternally, that the suffering we wish to alleviate is not only in this world, but even more the eternal suffering in the world to come. If it is wrong to give people the gospel without giving them bread, it is also wrong to give people bread and send them on their way with a full stomach to damnation when we could have alleviated that suffering through the proclamation of the gospel. So we have rights inhered to us by virtue of being made in the image of God, and we have responsibilities the duties that Waldersdorf identifies as the reverse side of the same coin of those same rights. When the movie uh, Titanic was being made, they showed people, of course, in that movie, scrambling and fighting to get into the life rafts, asserting themselves. What they did not show, for no one would have believed it today, was the historical reality agreed upon by all the accounts that the men let the women go first with the children. And many of them simply stood and watched and gave themselves to drown that others may be saved. You see, as we think of justice, we need to go further and think of mercy Ask for it, and then give it to those around us to be a vehicle for their receiving gospel mercy too. Well, let's do that in prayer together as we look at this Psalm 123. Perhaps there is some area in your life where you want to say to God, have mercy Would you do that? Would you look up to the Lord like a servant to the master, to his hand, practicing radical submission before him? And as your eye meets his and sees his compassion and grace, would you be moved in your heart to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Would you go beyond that and pray this prayer for the oppressed around the world? Would you go beyond that and touched by the mercy of Jesus become by his spirit a vehicle for gospel mercy here in this church and around the world. Look up to the Lord in a moment of quiet.
in Jesus' name. Amen.